retreat on the inner critic, and um, we'll be I'll kind of wrap up that retreat and enter a little talk about some other things as well. There's a story of two sisters. Man is in a house, and he's not doing so well, kind of lonely, and there's a knock on his door. He opens the door, and there's a, a beautiful woman, well, well-dressed, has one of those voices that we all find very uh, attractive. And he's, of course, you know, kind of surprised that she just showed up at his door. She says, I've, I've come. I need a place to stay. Can I, can I stay with you for a while? And he says, sure, please, come right on in, of course. And he's very, very happy, very um, elated that suddenly out of the blue comes this, this, uh, this kind of very pleasurable experience. So he invites her in and bustles around to get her settled and all. And there's another knock on the door. And he goes to the door and there is somebody who is really ugly, who is mean looking, who is not well dressed and has one of those voices that just grate upon you. He says, who are you? What do you want? You know, get out of here. He says, no, no, you invited me here too. Because wherever my sister goes, I go. Repair. So in a way, we're all like that. We're all like this man, that we're always trying to find something that we are inviting in, something that's, oh, so great and so wonderful. And we're always hoping that it comes unadorned. But behind it is always the other side. When we are working with our lives and we have something in our life that we say, oh, this is what I want. I want this particular state. I want this particular thing. I want this particular idea. And we do our best to pull it all together and to live it. We have to acknowledge that the other side comes with it. That where there is gain, there is loss. That where there is perfection, imperfection comes. That where there is something that is holy and beautiful and bright, along with that comes that which is broken and dark. Of course, the opposite is true as well. Part of what keeps people trapped in the inner critic and keeps us trapped in these cycles of despair and difficulty is that we keep hoping that we can somehow get one half without the other. And somehow one half of us we can really like and appreciate and we'll buff up and we'll present to the public and everybody will love us and, and the other half will keep dark and hidden and you know, back there somewhere. It doesn't work like that. They all come together. In any room or any group, there's all sorts of people. And there's all sorts of people inside of us. So our practice is the practice of complete awareness and complete acceptance. This is the way the world works. There is light, there is dark. There is skillful, there is unskillful. There are people who are really kind and nice and there are people who are really mean and nasty. It is this acceptance of the way 
the world works and the way we are gives us a foundation for actually living our life in a healthy way. It's like if somebody's in a 12-step program of recovery, the very first step is you've got to say, you know, i got a problem. I've got a big problem. I've got a problem that's so big I can't even solve it myself. Once you say that, then you can start the proto-recovery. But until you actually acknowledge the way things are, you can't really work with it. So the first foundation of working with the inner critic is just acknowledging the way things are. When we really acknowledge the way things are, we just say, this is my problem, this is the way things look, this is the way things are. Immediately, immediately, the inner critic is halved. Immediately. Because somehow, because of our North American culture, somehow because of all the media that we've watched, somehow because of all the news that we've seen, we have this picture in our mind of the whole and complete satisfied being. Doesn't exist. These two sisters always come together. These two sides. So what do we do? In this tradition, we emphasize First off, you live ethically. You make the standard of not killing, not lying, not stealing, not misusing sexuality or alcohol and drugs as the foundational practice. For imperfect people, we have that as a foundational practice. Because if we have those basic precepts there, then we certainly cause a whole lot less harm and suffering for ourselves and others. And when we're living ethically, there's a whole lot less to pound ourselves on, to criticize ourselves, to judge ourselves for. It's this ethical foundation Thank you, Taylor. This ethical foundation that is so important. Next, each person, each of us, has his or her own karma. Karma means action and interaction. It just means all the things that we've done in our life, all the things that we've done from the time that we were a kid right to now and probably even before that, all the things that we've done, we hold in this life, this being right here. That we have shaped our life moment after moment after moment. We've shaped our life, and our life has been shaped by all the things that we've encountered. So if you look around the room, everybody is different. Everybody has different hair, different eyes, everybody has different energetic flavor, everybody sits in different posture. And our entire history Everything that we have done, everything that we have encountered, is present right here, right now. This is not just the culmination of our history, but this in in a way embodies our whole history. If even one thing that we dislike had been taken out, if we'd be able to cut one hole in our past and say, I want to take out that hole, the person that we have here would be completely different. When we can completely come into the mind that is big and embraces and accepts the things the way things are, we can actually learn to heal. We actually heal our whole history. When we really see that this, this life I have right here is precious, this life I have right here is really, really valuable, and this life I have, just exactly as it is, is the life I can use to help other people. And we really come to that direct experience of that. Then everything that led up to this life 
was essential, was important to go through, to experience. There were no mistakes. And when we see that our life was not a big mistake, that our life was not a whole series of of failures, but that our life was a whole series, a whole process of things that led up to this being we have right here, to this particular way that only you can help the world, the particular energy that only you bring into the world. When we see our whole history as the culmination of of this, and this is an offering to the world, we transform our past. It's kind of nice, you know? Saves you a lot of therapy. I think I was saying last week that it's or some some place or some someplace. I was saying that it's really important for a healthy community to have a number of people who are in um, solid recovery from some big problem. Because you know, you can't get the wisdom. You can't get that kind of wisdom unless some people have gone through really, really difficult times, unless people have really faced difficult problems. And it's the facing of the difficult problems that what actually brings, generates wisdom and generates this big mind. So if, if we haven't really faced those, if we haven't had really pro- big problems, if we haven't really faced our life and all of its difficulties, there's no wisdom. And if there's no wisdom, there's no compassion. And if there's no compassion and no wisdom, then we just leave these small, hard, selfish lives. So for people who are really in training, hard as it is, even for myself, I often wish people, may you have many challenges, may you have many difficulties, because it is exactly, those are the seeds, that is the, that is the, the fertilizer for us discovering how big, how much capacity we have inside. Because, you know, our, our, our tendency, of course, is we just assume, you know, do whatever is easy, not be particularly challenged. We like to find that, that easy road or that's very comfortable, everybody likes us. And, well, but that does not require us to dig inside and to find those resources and to cultivate those resources. It doesn't require us to dig inside for a strength that we haven't had, haven't found. It's only when we have challenges that we are, we are demanded to find the strength to meet those challenges inside. So, this workshop on the inner critic is really, in a way, not about the inner critic. You know, it's not about getting rid of the inner critic. It's about just meeting the challenge of our life. Meeting the challenge of that life, whatever it happens to be. And that's a whole different approach than we often carry to this kind of thing. We always carry the approach of, I want to get better, and the way I want to get better is I want to get rid of something. And as soon as we want to get rid of something, when I say, I would like to cut off my left arm, I'm going to like it. It's not particularly healthy. 
and my left arm might not be working so well, I need to learn how to use it right. And then I'm a bigger, wholer person. The other aspect of this inner critic is, of course, the, that fundamental Buddhist teaching of impermanence. You know, we all get stuck and our mind starts saying, well, the way I am right now, the horrible state I'm in right now, this way I am is the way it's always going to be. We've all been in that, that emotional thing. We've been really down or depressed or we've been locked into some job. And, and somehow the mind thinks, oh, it's like this right now and I'm stuck here. But we are not stuck. We are never stuck. Never, ever, ever stuck. We temporarily may have a, a period where it looks either stable or looks, looks stuck. Everything is constantly, constantly, constantly changing, constantly disappearing, constantly coming forward. And it is this very truth of impermanence, this truth that our life is constantly evolving, means that how we are living our life right now, how we are accepting our life right now, how we are facing our life right now, sets the stage for what comes, sets the stage for what's next. So if we have a really difficult, hard time, if we're in one of those phases that's really, really, really dry, if we're digging that well and just digging and digging and digging, all we got is just dirt and mud and sand, and we haven't touched water yet. How we act and work with that time, if we keep digging that well, we will eventually hit water. We don't know how soon the water will be there. If we're in one of these dry, hard places, if we just keep walking, if we just keep walking the path, if we just keep practicing, it opens up. We end up in a place that's green and verdant for a while. And so our life and our practice is not about, I will practice and I will encounter beautiful, boundless mind and all my problems will be free because I'll be in bliss all the time. Heaven will rain upon me. That's frankly a fairly immature Hope. Our practice is about being genuinely human. Being genuinely human with all of the genuinely human humanness of us. Our practice is about becoming larger. Our practice is about seeing our body is really this whole, everything we see here, smell, taste, and touch, is our body, is our life. It all has to be embraced. It all has to be drunk down. And the power that is present comes through us. Impermanence is just the way things are. Just the way things are. The next little piece, though, is we don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't know what the future is going to bring. And our inner critics, of course, and the part of us that is small and limiting and is worried, has these predictions about how things will be. Has these predictions about um, causation. Even though we can only see a few of the variables involved, even though we can only see a few of the strands that led us here, somehow in our mind we predict the way things are going to be. And then, of course, we become afraid of the way things are going to be. And then, of course, we begin reacting to our fear about the way things are going to be. And then we either give up or we get angry or we... But the truth is, we don't know. The truth is, we do not know what's going to come next. You know, we have all these concerns in this country about the economic situation. 
you know, North Korea launches a nuclear weapon, all those considerations will be completely gone, just like that. We don't know. If we win the lottery or inherit a bunch of money, I guarantee all your personal worries will disappear just in a second. We don't know what the future is going to bring. So because we don't know what the future is going to bring, and it will bring, of course, the thing things always brings, it will bring good and bad, it will be easy and hard, it will bring opportunities of one sort or another. Like that. It's a surprise. Because we don't know, then what is really important is how meticulously we are doing our best to live this life right here, right now, with attention, with appreciation, with ethics, with respect. Because even though we don't know what the future holds, if we are living our life in that way, we're doing our best right now, and doing our best right now, and doing our best right now, and doing our best right now, whatever that best is, doing our best right now, and doing our best right now, we're going to have the very best outcome. Right? We accept who we are, we accept all these problems, we do our best, we do our best, we do our best, we do our best. And there is no perfect best. Our best, we do our best, our inadequate best. So if you want to as the Buddha says, if you want to know what your future is, look at how you're, how you're living and behaving right now. He also says, if you want to know what your past is, look at how you're behaving right now. And then the last chunk here is this is not about this small person. And of course, we all have our particular personal life we have to take care of, of course. But if that life is only a small life that revolves around I, me, and my, if our view of ourself is just this small little bundle of problems, it's a pretty hard, dark life. So it is important that we have this truth of compassion, that we have this truth of how can we help and be a benefit to others in our particular way, our particular gift. Because it's only when we have that mind that really is trying to be a benefit to others in our particular way that the heart opens, that we become a wider container, that our life in this moment gains a greater greater meaning than if it's just about, am I happy? There's a little book that we're going to give everybody at the end of uh, this, um, during lunch. It's uh, Ajahn Amaro, the uh, Theravadan teacher who will be here next summer, an old friend of ours. And um, he, his mother was a, a person of great compassion. And so after she died, he wrote this little booklet called, What About the Mice? Because his mother had gone through a, she, uh, I think she was getting ready to leave her home and go into a nursing home. I think that was the story. And when that happened, they, they found out that she'd been intentionally feeding all the mice in the house. 
that she'd been intentionally taking care of all these little beings. And she was worried, what about the mice? What are they going to do when I leave? Who's going to take care of them? I mean, what, what a, what a, uh, a, heart of, a heart of compassion. And of course, as you, you all know those stories of people in, in nursing homes, that if they're given one plant to take care of, to be responsible for, one thing to have to love, one thing to, to be a benefit to, their life is happier. They live longer. And if we want a happy life, if we want to have a life that is full, it does not come because we've gotten what we think we want. It comes because what we have given. It comes because who we've helped. It comes because how much we've loved. It comes because of our generosity. It comes secondarily to this life of a bodhisattva. Then there's a deep satisfaction. So, as the end of this inner critic retreat, I really encourage everyone to appreciate this life, live ethically, and do your best to really take on the care, the help of others in some way. With that combination, it's a pretty, pretty wholesome life. Well, the last thing is we can't do this alone. You know, if we are alone, if somebody, there's, all, there's some traditions that they say, go off and you know, live by yourself in, uh, in a cave. If we do that, the frame of reference that we have is our own mind and our own thoughts, our own belief system. And we keep sitting, sitting there with our own mind, our own thoughts, our own belief system. We keep trying to affirm ourselves. The same thing is true if somebody says, okay, I'm going to go practice the, the spiritual life and I'm going to sit on my own and There's certainly a time that that's important. But as a foundational teaching, people who do that often come out of that very, very confused. Because they have no no community to give them, to, to connect with, to relate with. They have no community to give them feedback with. They have no community to help them continually expand and enlarge their, their mind and their awareness. We can't do this alone. We have too much conflict inside. We have too many uh, pulls in different ways. But when we begin to connect with other beings, when we begin to connect with other people, when we join a community and our heart begins to become intertwined with others, with any, any kind of healthy community, then that becomes a support. That becomes an encouragement. That becomes a, a way that not only are we helping everybody else, but everybody else is helping us. And then together, we become bodhisattvas. Together, we become enlightened. Together, we become wisdom. Together, we offer the world whatever we can offer the world. So thank you all very much for practicing. Thanks for coming to this retreat. And those of you who did, we do these probably once a year. Um, and, and people who've been around know that if I do it, it's very different. If Kojin DT do it, it's very different. If Chosen does it, it's very different. So if you come back next year, it'll have a very different flavor, I'm sure. Next weekend, Chosen does mindful eating. She's right now in L.A. doing mindful eating. And she was talking to me last night and saying, oh, it is so sad to see 
these, these elegant, uh, attractive people you know, in L.A., that's, that's very, very highly prized there, elegant, attractive people who come to her workshop of mindful eating and reveal this tortured part of themselves that is so tied up and so bound with issues around food and eating. It's sort of another version of the inner critic, although it's a very destructive version. And so next week, when, we, when she does the, inner, the, the mindful eating, the sacred art of eating workshop, it will be looking at this same thing I'm talking about, though from a practical perspective dealing with food, our attitude toward food. And so if you're so inclined, it's a great workshop to come to. She's a lot funnier than I am, too, so people laugh a lot more. So, thank you all very much for your practice. Let's pass out the chant books, and let's do the sharing of blessings, uh, because we need to dedicate, we need to dedicate the uh, workshop that we just did. We need to dedicate that to other people. So we'll do the sharing of blessings, which is on whatever page it's on. And in, in, as part of the traditional Buddhist um, approach, if you've been to all of our services, you know we're always doing dedications. We're always saying, may this life be a benefit to other people. And this particular sutra starts off, may the goodness that arises from my practice, may the goodness that arises from my life, may the goodness that arises from my life <clears throat> be a benefit. Across the board. Page 63. The Lord of death and everybody else. Thank you.